We have gotten to the portion of our worship service this morning where we hear from God's word. We have been singing God's word. We have prayed through God's word and we have read God's word. And now we will learn from God's word. So please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians as we continue our series in this epistle. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we went through it. I went through this verse um, last week, but I wanted us to take a look, a a longer, um, a deeper, if you may, look of this verse. We would only be covering one verse today. That would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. This is the Word of God. Paul writes, therefore, comfort one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Our Father, our God, we are humbled to be gathered together to worship you in unity and love, to call upon your name which you have revealed to us by your spirit through the atoning work of your son, Jesus Christ. So as we open your word, Father, we ask that you teach us the truth that is in it so that we may be edified, so that we may be comforted, so that we may be encouraged, so may, so we may be built up into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So use this time, Lord, to do so according to your will. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I was reading an article this week by Al Mohler, uh, Dr. Al Mohler, um, who referred to a study that was done back in 2005. I know that was a long time ago. Some of you may have just been born. Some of you may have not even been born then, or you were just in diapers. Some of you were, were... I'm actually old enough to remember what happened in 2005. I don't remember. Um, But there was a study done, uh, and that study was done by the National Study of Youth and Religion. Um, And out of that study, um, there was a book uh, that came out of it called Soul Searching by Christian Smith. And a term was coined in that book, which some of you may have been uh, exposed to, And that term that was coined is moralistic therapeutic deism. And the study was essentially to kind of get a sense of what exactly do young people believe? What is their theological view? What in every religion, really, including Christianity. So they just wanted to get an insight as to what people thought the church was or religion was. And the conclusion is most young people had this idea of religion that is moralistic, therapeutic, and deistic, if if you may. And that term, moralistic, therapeutic deism, was coined then. A couple of core tenets of That worldview is that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. 
which you would agree with, and most of us would agree with that. Um, things like God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible, even. Um, which you would say, yeah, of course, God wants everybody to be good and nice to each other and be fair um, and, and have moral values. Um, not only in, by, uh, in the Bible, but also in most world religions, that's, that's essentially what they would believe. And um, the central goal of life, the other, one of the other tenets is um, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, to have good self-esteem and to just be happy. That's the central goal of life. The other tenant is God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So we only need God when we face problems. Other than that, let's not bother God. He has more important things to do, um, like making sure that an asteroid doesn't hit Earth than to worry about my little small struggles, seemingly. So the only time that God needs to be involved in our life is when we have a real big problem and he just, we just call him and he's there, he solves the problem, heads back out. That's the kind of tenant that this worldview has. And lastly, um, in terms of the destiny of people, this moralistic therapeutic deism believes that good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. And you would say, yeah, of course, good people definitely go to heaven when they die. And if you are here on Friday, we walk through that. So if you weren't here on Friday, be there next Friday. I'm not even gonna go through that. Um, we talked about that idea even, right? So at face value, the things that we are, what I've, just, what I've said, may even make sense and say, I don't see anything wrong with that, Manny. I, of course, I don't see why you would have a problem with good, good people dying and going to heaven or when God comes in and solves our problems when problems arise or God exists who created and ordered the world, of course. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, what I want to show you from this text is contrary to that. Because when this ideology, by the way, 2005, imagine the people that were teenagers and young adults in 2005. And imagine what place they would hold in the church today when you are teenagers and young adults. I'm talking about myself, really. Because um, <laughs> um, I was a teenager back in 2005, maybe. Kind of, sort of, on, or at least a young adult. And imagine the place that people hold today that was raised on that moralistic therapeutic deism mindset in the church. Because when this gets in the church, then the duty of the church becomes something that supports and propagates these tenets that we just talked about. 
We just talk about this divine being, this deity that, that is outside of our reach. He's just out there. You just know that he's there. He's a force not to be messed with. He's there. He sometimes comes to solve problems, but outside of that, you can kind of work to be a good person because he teaches you how to be a good person in the Bible. And then all you have to do is come to church so you can learn to be a good person so that when you die, you can go to heaven. So the, the goal of the church or the duty of the church becomes attached to whatever the theology is. So it's important for us to consider in light of the text that we just read because what Paul talks to the Thessalonian church or what he exhorts or commands the Thessalonian church as a church is to comfort one another and to build one another continually. That's what he commands the church to do. That is the duty of the church that Paul commands or God commands through Paul. This is the apostolic command that we have as a church to comfort one another and to build up one another. And then if you look down and verse 11 starts with therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? He is talking in light of what the Thessalonians was going through. There was uncertainty going all the way back to chapter 4 in terms of people dying, believers dying, what happens to people when they die. And there's uncertainty in that. And he uh, reassures them that believers that, that actually die in Christ are going to be resurrected. And those that remain alive when the day of the Lord comes and, the, and Jesus comes, they will actually be taken up with him. So you don't have to worry about that. And then they're worried about their, the day of the Lord and judgment on judgment day. What happens? We're anxious because I don't know if I'm going to be a good person enough to end up in heaven. What happens? Paul says it comes, but you don't have to worry. You can be comforted in knowing that your sins are forgiven. In light of that, this is what you must do. This is where we are in verse 11. He gives them two main duties of the church that, we, that they must fulfill continuously. And that is completely distinct than any other worldview, any other religion, the comfort and building up Paul talks about. And my goal today is to show you that even though there are other means of comfort, even though that you can think of other ways of building each other up, i.e. moralistic, uh, therapeutic deism, the biblical comfort and biblical building up is different than that. And it is a duty we as a church must engage in, not just on Sundays, not just when we feel like it, not just every season, not when we have summer breaks or continuously. So let's take a look at these two duties, these two exhortations that Paul lays out. The first one is right there. 
Therefore, comfort one another. Some of your translations might even say, encourage one another. This is given to us as an active second person imperative. That is a fancy grammatical way of saying this command is not optional. This is a duty of the church. It's not optional. And when I say the church, I don't just mean a few people that hold some kind of office in the church. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about every single person who has been called out of the world to come and be grafted into the body of Christ by Him, by His Spirit. Every single person builds up the church or makes up the church. And it is not optional. It is an imperative. It is a command. And it is intended to be followed. So what does it mean to comfort? What does comfort mean? A couple of commonly used senses of the word, the Greek word parakaleo, which is something that we've talked about. Para and kaleo. Para means alongside, kaleo, to be called. So to be called alongside is the literal meaning of it. A few senses that the Bible uses, because um, it has a wide re range of meaning, I want to kind of cover all of them and really hone into what Paul is saying in this context. The first one is to, um, to just call you to an aid, to come, someone to come alongside you, to walk with you, to help you. It has more of a sense of, hey, somebody's struggling and we come alongside them. That's the more literal sense of that meaning. The second sense is that um, one of like beseeching. Paul uses that in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you by the mercies of God. That is a, a calling on God's and prayer, or it kind of has a sense of flowing from a superior end to a, uh, an inferior. So it's more like a, I'm, I'm making a proposition for, to you. The third one is exhorting, as sometimes it's translated as exhortation or encouragement or like kind of winning over somebody. And one of the least used senses of this, um, this word is one of comforting, simple, direct. Something that is, so, or someone coming and giving you a word of encouragement, just so that you can feel comforted in a time of despair. And I think this is what Paul is talking about in verse 11, because in light of what the Thessalonians are going through, they're going through uncertainty and anxiety because they don't know what happens to people that die and they don't know how to be when the Lord returns. And that puts you in a place of either uncertainty or anxiety or a combination of both. And in that time, what do they need? They need comfort. They need someone to come and speak to them to comfort them, to give them an encouraging word. And the Thessalonians honestly would have known 
this word from their culture because really exhortation and, and the, the, the illustration I gave of, uh, last time we talked about this word is um, exhortation versus kind of encouragement. The exhortation is how a coach would speak to his players versus the cheerleaders Ad- address the players. You guys have been to football or basketball games or at least seen it. It's like, go team, you can win, whatever the rhyme is and the pom-poms going. That's supposed to give you, you know, that en- encouragement or maybe even the fans yelling and, and doing that. As opposed to when the coach calls you to the sideline or before the, at halftime and he gives you a pregame speech, that's an exhortation. Like, it has more force to it. It has more authority to it. There's even a plan of action for you to follow with it. So that's the exhortation. And in, in the culture that the Thessalonians were in, people found exhortation comforting because it provided a plan, it gave you a clear line, and it challenged you even to do something. And that might be a little bit of a foreign idea because of the way that we want to be comforted these days, if we are feeling down, is for someone to come and just say, it's going to be okay, it's going to be nice. Even though that we have a part to play in whatever made us feel nice, um, made us feel down. But they were in a culture where exhortation was a form of comfort because it was used with a view to overcome grief so they would have known this and they would have also been aware of ways of giving comfort like personal presence gave comfort like someone just being there gives you comfort this morning i woke up and um michael's uh, we have someone staying with us um who's who's michael's friend um and he heard some some bad news that someone that he knew or someone that he knows had passed away. Um, and we don't we don't know them, um, but we just sat. My wife and I just sat there with him and kind of just talked through things. And he appreciated not the words, just us sitting with him. He said, "Thank you guys for sitting with me." So that personal. Presence is a way that gives us comfort. And they would have known that visits. When somebody's sick, when somebody's down, you go to visit them. The same thing happened in in first century Thessalonica. They would have known that. Letters. People wrote to each other. Hence, we're reading one of them, actually. This is a letter that Paul writes to the, to the Thessalonian church, right? To encourage them, to give them comfort and ways to, and, and times of struggle. Maybe we don't write letters, but we send texts. Maybe emojis, praying hands, right? Muscles, smiley face, all of that. To give comfort to one another. What surprised me in my studies 
is that they actually had professional comforters, which in our time we'd call them counselors. People go for four years and maybe even six or seven years to be counselors in our time, right? And you go and you pay your money and then you sit down and you get comforted by counselors. Did you know that Thessalonica had professional counselors, professional comforters? People would get hired to go to people who are going through suffering and hard times just to be there and comfort them. That was a surprise for me. They were available. They would have known that. And they used, by the way, philosophical teachings, religious teachings and practices, prayers and mysteries to do so. They used methods like music, sleep, even wine to get comfort. Some of you might like... Um, watching Andrew Tate because it gives you comfort. Some of you might like watching, uh, what's the Can Canadian guy's name? Uh, Jordan Peterson, who uses philosophical um, ideologies to kind of give you a sense of, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain about things, right? So these things aren't really so far removed. The Thessalonian church was going through uh, uncertainty and they're seeing things they had professional comforters. They know what Paul is saying when he says that comfort one another, however, even though they would have been aware of these things, and they, this is the environment that they, they were in, for the church, when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says comfort one another, is beyond this, what I've got done explaining or expressing. The churches, the command to the church and the church's duty to comfort one another is not founded on being more moral or getting therapy to get over something or to look for a higher power to give you a sense of comfort. It's beyond that. What Paul is talking about is not beyond in a larger scale, but beyond in a very, very specific way. It is based on a notion that there is no true comfort apart from God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And more specifically, what he describes right above in verse 10. Really, the idea starts at in verse 9, when he says, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we will live together with him. It is based on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is based on who Christ is. So it separates it from any philosophical ideology. It separates it from any other worldview or any other religion. Any, no song can give you comfort. There is no true comfort that you can find except from God. And we can find illustrations throughout the Bible. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. 
and you look at the book of Job, and that is a perfect illustration. From chapter 2, literally, to chapter 37, we see how human comfort is inadequate. You guys know the story of Job, right? Job loses his family, loses his wife, loses his belongings. He was a rich man, but now he's broke, and let alone he loses all he loves, he loses all his possession, he loses his health, and guess what comes? Comfort comes to him by way of his friends. And for about 37 chapters, we see how that falls on its face. It is inadequate for 37 chapters. But in chapters 38 through 41, we see God speaking to Job. And Job confessing how comforted he has been by God himself revealing the truth to him. So there's no, the notion that I have described, that there's no true comfort outside of God, is illustrated in the book of Job. And the psalmist even picks it up in Psalm 69, verse 20, where he says, Reproach has broken my heart. And I am so sick, and I hope for sympathy, but there's none. And as for comforters, I found none. So he's looking for someone to comfort him, and he finds none. His heart is broken. He's sick. He's looking for sympathy from people. And he looks around, and he finds none. Solomon in his wisdom also looks at the oppression of the world and states it in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power but they had no one to comfort them. And this is what Solomon sees. And this is what you see. This is what we see. We get into things and we want to be comforted. And we look at our friends. We look at social media. We look at music that we listen to. We look at everything else. But it just does not seem to give us that comfort. Yet, in our text today, both the source and the means of the comfort that the church's duty for one another is Christ's atoning work and salvation. That's what we saw in verse 10. Christ dying for us so that we may live together with Him is what separates the comfort of the church. So when we think about having a duty to comfort one another, it is founded on, the source is the atoning and saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what we look at. 
to comfort one another. This is a, a sure source of comfort and encouragement. Listen to what Paul says to the same church in the second letter, um, that is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, when he prays for them, when he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort. You hear that? He loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Encourage your hearts. You notice that language, comfort, encourage. You see the repeated theme there? Encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. This is the, the, the basis of our comforting one another. It's the Father, the God, our Father, and Jesus, our Lord, who has given us eternal comfort, who gives us that encouragement. Paul calls actually God himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, the God of comfort, the God of all comfort, in fact. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which ourselves are comforted by God. You see how distinct it is that when we say we are going to, we are called to comfort one another, not just called, but really we are exhorted, we are encouraged, we are commanded, it is an imperative to comfort one another. We're not comforting one another based on, you know, sometimes life be like that. You know, everybody dies. You know, the moment you're born, the moment you're just waiting to die. Or here's my favorite one. Somebody's heartbroken about something, we come alongside and like, yeah, I remember. I had the same kind of issue, you know, and then it just becomes about us. And then when they think about us, they forget for a moment what's about them, but we leave and then they're back again. It doesn't give you full comfort. Or you go to the therapist, then they go way, way deep and like, okay, how, tell me about your childhood. Okay, what exactly is happening? Oh, okay. Tell me, how does that make you feel? And I'm, I'm mocking. I was actually en route to be a counselor. So I did my bachelor's in psychology and had a year of um, grad school and being professional counselor, licensed professional counselor. And my first ever job out of school was in-home counselor. So I kind of know what I'm talking about, just a little bit. Tell me how that makes you feel. Let's, let's focus on that feeling right there. Let's, let's just camp there and, and, and live through that feeling. And I'm not saying feelings are important, but ultimately feelings, see, I, right before service, I, I, I was angry. And right now I'm so delighted. And it's just gonna be a matter of traffic going back home that's going to sit me in an hour. I might be hangry again. That's hungry and angry altogether. 
feelings are fleeting, and they can't give us this eternal, lasting comfort. But what Paul is telling the church, commanding the church to comfort one another, is one that is God Himself who comforts us because He is the God of some comfort. Just whenever you have problems. No, the God of all comfort. And I've told you guys what all means in Greek, right? Because this was written in Greek. All means all. So now you know in the Greek what all means. So at this time, you may be asking, okay, how does God comfort us then? What is the means by which God comforts his people? If it's God who is the God of our comfort, and we are supposed to comfort one another by the comfort of God by which we have been comforted, how, how does that actually practically work out? What makes you, 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 you mock everybody that comes and tries to help and whatever? Okay, how am I supposed to comfort as a church? How are we supposed to be comforted? And the primary means of this comfort is the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit Himself is known as the Comforter. And the Spirit's work of revealing and illuminating the truth of Scripture is by the means by which God comforts His church. And this is why when we gather together as a church, guess what we do? Call the worship. Turn to your Bibles. This is the verse. Let's look at God's Word. And we sing the, the songs that are biblical truths put to a rhythm and, and, and um, whatever the other musical term is. It, it, it eludes me right now. Um, and chords, maybe. Help? No, okay. Right? And then we, we speak of those biblical truths to remind ourselves, right? And then that ends, and then we turn our attention to Scripture reading. Maybe sometimes it's a few verses, or like today, an entire chapter in Isaiah 40 who, that gives us this truth. And then we pray through those Scriptures, and then when that's done, we open our Bible, and then we read the Bible, and the Spirit is doing that in our midst to comfort one another by the work of the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit, as He illuminates and reveals the truth of Scripture. This is what Jesus says to His disciples in John chapter 14, verse 26, when He says, but the Advocate, again, the word here that is translated the Advocate, in some translations, the Comforter, the Helper, as some translations have it, is parakletos, the same word as the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring, your, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. You see the means and the, and the agent, so if you, if you will, of, of that comfort being the Holy Spirit himself. And the way that he does it is by teaching you and bringing to remembrance, exhortation being a way of comfort, exhortation being something that gives you an idea to get over whatever uncertainty and anxiety lies in your heart. 
nasim book John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus again says, when the advocate comes, he calls him again, the parakletos, the, the, the helper, the, 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 the comforter. When he comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So he will make you focus on what, who, who I am, what I have done. So the Spirit's work of comfort is to point us to who Christ is and what He has done. So when Paul says, hey, this comfort, therefore comfort one another, right before it, he says, it's through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we will live together with Him. That is the, the work of Jesus Christ that we ought to focus on. And when we focus on Christ, when we have our eyes focused, on Christ as the Holy Spirit continues to gear our hearts that way. We are comforted and we comfort one another. And as a result, what happens? You will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, this is in the, in the context of that he's talking to his disciples, more specifically his apostles, who would go and, and, and spread the gospel to the rest of the world. And we, by hearing the gospel and trusting in, in, in the gospel, are grafted into to faith in him. But it means it's still the same. It's the gospel. It's the preaching of the gospel. It's the written word of God as illuminated by the Holy Spirit, which is the means of our comfort. Because whatever is written in Scripture is about Jesus Christ. Whatever is written and whatever you study, if it doesn't lead you to, if it doesn't show you Christ, reread it, pray that the Lord reveals Christ. Because it's not just to trying to teach you how to be a moral person. How to do good things so that you can achieve your way to heaven. It's to show you that Christ is the only perfect Son of God. And in trusting and who he is and what he has done is the only way to the Father. That's the gospel. Paul says in Romans 15 and 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So the perseverance and encouragement of this, the Scriptures, holding fast to this, what the Scriptures teach and being encouraged by what Scripture teaches, we can have lasting hope and comfort in that hope.
This is what Paul is calling the church in Thessalonica to do. He's commanding the church to be agents of this comfort. Each of the church members in Thessalonica are called. You notice how he says, therefore, be comforted. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, therefore, find comfort in this. The command is to comfort one another. Who is the one another? The person that's sitting next to you, the person that's sitting in front of you, the person that's sitting behind you is the one another. I am the one, you are the another. And you are the one, I am the another. And we are called to be the agents of that comfort. So as the church who seemingly was experiencing some level of uncertainty and anxiety regarding death of their loved ones and eventual coming of the Lord to judge the living and the dead, Paul says, comfort one another. And this is about reminding each other the truth of Scripture that empow empowered by the divine author, who is the Holy Spirit, that is the necessary remedy for the church to find comfort. I'll say it again. Reminding each other of the truth of Scripture empowered by the Holy Spirit is the necessary remedy for the church to be comforted. Now the cause of your uncertainty, the cause of your anxiety, may not be the same as the, Thessalon uh, the Thessalonians. You may not be too worried about people dying around you and wanting to know where they end up or what happens when you die. You may not be worried about that. That may not be the cause of your uncertainty. Or the cause of your anxiety might not be, when would the Lord's day come and how would I fare when, when he comes to judge me? That might not be what is the most pressing need that's causing you to, to be anxious. It might be just as simple as, and I'm not simplifying it, but it might just be something like, I don't know how college is going to be next year. I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate college. And I don't know how fill in the blank, whatever it is. But there are uncertainties. There are anxieties. In our life. Maybe it's a struggle with sin. But when those things creep up, the remedy that Paul prescribes to the Thessalonian church is the same remedy that we are prescribed, we have prescribed for us. Comfort one another. Reminding one another the truth of Scripture as empowered and revealed and illumined by the Holy Spirit. 
We must remind one another, we must encourage one another, we must exhort one another to look to Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And to God, our Father, who is the God of all comfort, to supply us with divine comfort in our hearts by His Spirit, through His Word. That's the duty that you and I have as a church. And it's not optional. You don't have the option to say, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of young and I don't know what comfort I can bring to the person that's sitting next to me who's older. Or I'm, I'm kind of shy and I, I just don't even know how to begin conversations. Oh, I don't read my Bible enough. Or you don't get to say that. It's the imperative is we must comfort. We remind one another as a church. That's your duty. That's my duty. That's why I'm standing here. That's why the worship team or the, the choir stands here. That's why the person leading prayer is doing. And you also are to, to engage in that. That's the duty of a church. When we sing, we're reminding of the truth. That there is a God who reached for us. And in case I forgot today and because I just feel like I'm, I'm just not a good enough person this week because I have failed miserably in my struggle to sin. And I hear my brother and my sister behind me or in front of me, next to me, singing loud and worshiping God, saying, there is a God who is merciful. He's acquainted with our grief. He understands what I'm going through. And I hear you singing that. Guess what that does to me? It gives me comfort that there is a God who would reach for me. And we can both say hallelujah to the son of suffering together. And we are comforted that way. Or when we're reading scripture and we're praying through the scripture and, our, and whoever is reading and praying through the scripture says, we cannot achieve our own salvation. And I'm struggling with that same thing. And my salvation is assured in Christ Jesus. It's not of my own. And the person is praying and I'm listening to the words of the prayer. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is, is putting our un, un, um, unity of heart. And, and he convicts me of that truth. And I'm, I'm just comforted by that. And you are commanded to do so with one another. You can't, there's no such thing as a sideline Christian. You are supposed to be engaged in the comforting process. Because we are to comfort one another. And secondly, we are to build up or strengthen one another. That's the second command in verse 11. The second imperative that is given to the church is to actively build up one another. This language is a construction language, which comes from two Greek words, oiko, which means oiko, which means house, and domeo, which means build. It's kind of like a house builder or an architect or building a household. That's what it really means if you put those two words together. And it's even sometimes used for planting trees. You know, you plant the tree and maybe... 
um, not a garden, but a tree. When, when you, you plant a tree and it grows up, it sometimes is used for that. And this concept of um, a contribution of individual pieces to make up a whole. That's what a building is, right? You look at this building, this structure around us, there's a floor and the floor has is one piece and there's these walls and there are pieces and there's this roof and there's a piece there and all of it makes this room. So each individual piece won't make the whole room, but all of it put together makes this room where we can actually sit down and find shelter in. Right? This, this, and this concept is something that was uh, prevalent in the world that the Thessalonian church was in. For the Jews, God builds the word, the world, and the righteous build by doing good works and learning the law and applying the law and studying the law. For the Jews, that was it. For the civilized or the enlightened or the sophisticated members of society, which is the Gentiles, good thoughts and teachings are believed to be the foundation stones of a solid house. That's how you build each other up, by having positive vibes, we would say, right? Positive thoughts, you know, self-affirming, look in front of the mirror. I am beautiful. I am confident, self-affirming, you know? Those are the things that made you the foundation of that solid house and good thoughts and teachings. Um, those teachings can be intellectual in nature, philosophical in nature. So you get your your class there, and this is what the this is what they would have heard, and what it, they would have known about building each other up. And really, I can ask any of you, and you can ask anybody, and you will find a similar concept going around in our world today. And these definitions really fit that moralistic, therapeutic, deism worldview. However, what Paul is commanding here is beyond and much deeper than this again. Paul says to the church that they must build on something. That's what the, 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 the use of the word here is you are to build on something. Not build something from scratch. But it's distinct. The church is building up, you and I building up each other. The Thessalonians being commanded to build one another up. The foundation is what makes it distinct. What are we building on? Which assumes an existing structure uh, on which to build. And here's what Paul explains to the Corinthian church. Um, you can listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. For we are God. Um, he is uh, speaking of the, the believers, the church, uh, when he says, For we are God's fellow workers. So actually, he's talking about um, him as an apostle coming as a fellow worker. You are God's field, God's building. This is the church. 
according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another built on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid. What is the foundation? That's verse 11. Which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will indicate because it is revealed with fire. So, and he continues on all the way to 17 for the sake of time. We won't, we, we won't go through that. But he's talking about the foundation, the foundation on which we must all build as a church is the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the architect? Who is the builder? Who is building the church? We know that there is one divine architect. And we see this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he himself The Lord Jesus Christ himself says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon the revelation of Jesus being the son of God, that is the rock, not Peter. We'll see that it's not him. He even admitted that it's not Peter that was that the church is built on. It's actually the revelation of of God himself showing him that Jesus was the son is the son of God that is what Jesus says I will build my church who's building the church Jesus the Lord Jesus is the one true divine architect of the church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it and Peter looks back, I'm sure he has this in mind, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, when he reveals the scripture as the foundation, for it is contained in scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a, chosen, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Who is the cornerstone? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is commanded to build each other up further on the foundation of Christ, as the Father reveals Him through what? Through Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is different than building each other up by positive messages that tell you you're a good person. You know, there's, there's potential in you. I believe in you. You should believe in yourself. Love yourself so you can love others. 
You are so worthy. There's so much value in you. Even Jesus came down to die for you. And these things kind of make sense. Like we would receive them and easily say amen to them. And, and I'm not saying that there's no value in you. You are made in the image of Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. But what gives you value is him, not your inherent being. But let's see what works. Whatever gets the people going, whatever gets people come back and, and feel encouraged, that's what it means to be pragmatic. But what the Bible teaches is actually we are to build on the re revelation of Christ in the scriptures. That's the foundation. Not our own thoughts. Not our own positive vibes. Not our own self-affirmations and affirming each other and our sin. Not just being kind of fake, if you may, to one another so that, you know, oh, I like your shoes. Oh, I, you know, you're getting, you're getting big, whatever. That builds our confidence and builds not just kind of feeding the ego so that somebody's self-esteem can be propped up. But building on the foundation of the revealed work of Christ who died for us so that we will live together with him whether we're asleep or awake, whether we're dead or we're alive, we are his Because the temptation is, if something seems to work, we want to hold on to that and, and build on it. And it's, it's actually Peter who says, hey, we saw Jesus being transfigured. We actually heard uh, a, a sound from heaven coming and, and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. And we even saw Moses on one side and Elijah on the other side. And I don't know if they were, if Moses was on this side, on the right, or and Elijah doesn't matter. But they saw that, and remember what they said in the Mount of Transfiguration. They said, "Okay, we've seen, we we believe now. Can we just live here? Can we just build on that? That's it. Let's just camp here and just stay here. Because the temptation is, we want to find something that works, and we want to build on it." And if we are honest, that moralistic, therapeutic, deism idea, which we are all a victim to or accustomed to, or we hold one way or another, if not by confession, definitely by action. When, when you show up to church, you hear, and you see somebody singing up here, and you kind of just watch them sing, and, and then you walk out. And then you come uh, and you hear somebody preach and you sit there and you maybe you're encouraged. Maybe you find something insightful and you walk out and then for the next week, that's it. Or maybe you just read your Bible and it seems to work and it makes you feel good. 
you can actually do the checkbox thing and then the, the, the to-do list and he says, all right, cool, I, I did this, I have my prayer life, I, I did this. Maybe you, you would sing. And you're like, oh, I even sang in church, so I'm cool with God this week. And that seems to work, and it, it's, it works. And I'm being taught to be a good person. I don't slander people. You know, I don't commit adultery. I don't go to the store and, and, uh, and, and steal. And, uh, you know, I, relatively compared to the, my friends who are in school with me or my friends at my job, who are just sleeping around Friday nights, they're going out and partying and they're promiscuous and they're doing drugs and getting drunk and all of that. Compared to them, I'm, I'm definitely a good person. And what I read, uh, mostly it's not uh, something that confronts my sin or my, 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 my heart, which is deceitful. Um, something that, that kind of affirms that. So I have the nicest uh, devotional book, self-affirmation devotional book. And so it makes me feel good. I attend church, you know, because I believe in God. You know, he created me as a creator and sustainer. I believe in that. And that works. And I can, I can build on that. <laughs> That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the Bible is teaching us. To build up one another is to build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the revealed scriptures have to be the anchor, have to be the foundation on which we build. We use scripture to build each other up. And you know what happens sometimes when we use scripture to build each other up? We find out that there is sin in our lives because the scripture would show us by the power, but because the Holy Spirit would show us that there's sin in our life through the scripture. That there is a false sense of hope in our, in our heart. There is a false sense of security in our heart. Or there's a false belief system. And our own abilities. That's why Paul says, build up one another. Because the Thessalonians were clearly in need of growing and building and being built up and not crumble under the weight of their uncertainty and anxiety. what is needed so they don't crumble under the uncertainty and anxiety that they were experiencing is to build one, to build up one another, to build up one another on the revealed knowledge of God and His Son Jesus Christ in Scripture. With this mutual interrelationship of individuals with the end goal of being like Christ, Christ-likeness. That's the end goal of the building. 
Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That word used again for building. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What is, what is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? What does he mean by that? That's the scriptures. That's the Old and New Testament. But wait. I thought you said Christ was the foundation. What did the prophets write about? From Moses all the way to Malachi? They wrote about Jesus. What did the apostles write about? From Matthew to Revelation. They wrote about Jesus Christ. Hence, Paul says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, you know, a cornerstone, and I don't know how many of you know um, ancient Near East or ancient world um, architecture. I don't know how many are interested by that. When the foundation is laid, they, they put the strongest stone, the most precious stone, the most firm stone as the cornerstone, and then from there the foundation is laid. So it flows, the foundation literally flows out of that cornerstone. So the cornerstone, in a way, in a sense, is the foundation of the foundation. And Paul says, Christ Jesus himself is that cornerstone in verse 20. In whom the whole building being joined together is growing into. See, the foundation is... Out of the foundation comes the building. Joined together is growing to a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So not only are we building on what we already know, but we are to use the very spiritual truths that are revealed in Scripture for the benefit of others in the church, for one another. That's the duty that you have. That's the duty that the Thessalonians were commanded. I want you to consider the same, by the way. Regarding the things that make you uncertain and anxious, are you growing and also helping others grow around you? That's what building up is. You just don't get built up individually. But the command is to build up one another. Again, the one another is us. You are the one, I am the another. I am the one, you are the another. And this is what we do church for. This is why God puts us together in a group. Nobody ever grows by himself. Are you doing that? Because this imperative is not optional. This command is not optional. This is what the call of God is to his church. 
God has given you this identity through Christ who justifies you, adopts you, and sanctifies you, and then given you to the church and given the church to you as a means of comfort and edification for one another. That's the duty that you and I have as a church, which is completely different than any kind of comfort and edification any other worldview, any other religion can provide to you. Because it begins with Christ, it is founded on Christ, it is done by His Spirit, and it is done to the end of being like Him. Not self-centered, not self-seeking, because He loves us so. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word on which we stand. But not your word in a theoretical or even a theological knowledge of it. But you have given us your spirit who reveals the truth and convicts us of sin and truth and righteousness and causes us to be reminded of who your son Jesus Christ is and to look to him and to depend on him, to have faith in him. Thank you for this privilege. And if there's any in our midst who do not have this privilege, we ask today that you would open their eyes, lighten their hearts to this truth so they may cling to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Lord, continue to give us comfort for you are the God of comfort. But not in a mystical way, but in a way that is aligned with your will and your work and your word. In a way that draws us nearer to Jesus Christ, conform us, conforms us and to his image, gives us hope to rejoice and to be delighted on his day. Help us build each other up, not by lies, nor by words of flattery, nor any means of worldly wisdom, but let us be built up by and through the gospel so that we may be conformed individually into the image of Christ and grow your church so that we may reach a world that is perishing by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we trust that you are doing this in our midst. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the power of your Spirit. And we thank you for it. Lord, be with us for the remainder of our time. Cause us to walk in your ways, honoring you, 
honoring your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.